Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. You hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, today, Massachusetts' new distracted driving bill finally takes effect, meaning drivers will no longer be able to use any handheld devices behind the wheel. This comes after years of persistent campaigning from advocacy groups and supporters. But despite this legislative milestone, the real work to make distracted driving a centerpiece of public safety dialogue begins now. That's why a group from the Harvard T.H. Chan School Center for Health Communication is embarking on a national ad campaign to get drivers' eyes off their phones and on the road. Later in the show, African-American artist Jacob Lawrence set out to paint an inclusive history of the United States in his narrative series, The American Struggle. Now this little-recognized and little-seen series is drawing crowds at Salem's Peabody Essex Museum. But first, joining me in the studio, Jay Winston, Associate Dean for Health Communications at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hello, Jay. Glad to join you. I'm glad to have you. Emily Stein, president of Safe Roads Alliance. Welcome back, Emily. Thanks, Callie. And Ryan McMahon, vice president of insurance and government affairs at Cambridge Mobile Telematics, a smartphone telematics analytics provider. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Um, I want to start by uh, reminding people what's at stake. Uh, Let's take a listen to an interview with Allison Lowell, the mother of Gabriella Lowell, who was killed by a driver looking at his cell phone in June of 2018 in Massachusetts. What did you think when you heard what he was doing? I mean, that this was the cause of her death. Anger. Anger, anger, anger. I can't even just beyond that, beyond hurt, and so upset that he didn't have any respect for anybody else's lives because that was a choice. Picking up his phone was a choice. This wasn't an accident. It was a choice. What do you say to people who say, it's just a couple seconds. You know, I can look down and keep driving. It's not a couple seconds. I lost my daughter within one second of him looking at his phone. One second matters. A half a second matters. And it's something that needs to stop. That was Allison Lowell, the mother of Gabriella Lowell. She lost her daughter in June of 2018, a distracted driver. She spoke to us right before the time before this last successful attempt to get the bill pushed through that is now pushed through, approved, and effective as of now, Emily. And you know, like she, what the human cost of this is. Yeah, 
I keep saying the biggest tragedy of doing this work on, on legislation is meeting new families, you know, whether it's this past year or, or five or six years ago when people keep coming forward with saying, my daughter was killed while walking on the sidewalk. I've continued conversations with Allison since that interview, and it doesn't get easier. You know, her daughter was her only child, and I will never stop thinking about what Allison has lost and what all of us have lost. And you lost your father, to be clear. Yeah. Um, this April, it'll be nine years since my dad's been gone. And time heals in some way. But, you know, when you still see drivers just oblivious to the road, it hurts. And it also is like, OK, we still need to keep working and we need to keep working really hard. And so I'm really proud and, and admire all the families and survivors that we've worked with the past several years because, you know, we, we've formed this team and keep each other going. And now that the hands-free legislation, Massachusetts was the last New England state to get on board with this, is in place, are you breathing a sigh of relief? Where <laughs> are you? Well, I have to say, being at the bill signing was such a special moment. I was there with my family. I was there with my kids who never got to meet their grandfather. My mom made it. It's just a really big day to celebrate. Um, alongside the other advocates and the legislators and other leaders who helped pass this. And then the day after was the big drop. And it felt like, you know, the day after Christmas where you're just like, okay, well, now what? And it took a little bit of time to, you know, kind of gather myself together and say, okay, well, now the work really begins. And so we've, you know, been extremely busy the last two months with, you know, outreach, um, both to, to law enforcement, because they're going to be the ones enforcing the law, and district attorneys and judges and state agencies. And it's, it's, it's exciting. Um, everybody seems to be working together to see how can we creatively and effectively enforce this law. And so the outreach is why, Jay Winston, you're here, because you are starting a new campaign soon, which is focusing on distracted driving. Now, before you give us a a little insight about what's happening there. I want to remind people the work of uh, your department that you've done in the past. Pretty much, you put designated driver on the map as a term and a, as a concept and something that Americans uh, have really embraced. 30 years ago, nobody was talking about this, and then it became something that people paid attention to. Let's listen to a clip from an episode of Cheers that was part of the Hollywood Designated Driver campaign. Hey, fellas, do me a favor. You guys have had a few drinks. Sit down. Let me buy you some coffee. Oh, right? th thanks anyway, Sam, but everything's under control. Pete hasn't had a thing to drink all night. He's our designated driver. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. That's a good idea, Pete. I'm not the designated driver. I thought you were. No, no, I'm, I'm not the designated driver. What about you, Mark? I'm with Sam. I think we ought to try it sometime. <laughs> Wait right here. I'm going to call you a cab. Now, that's the work of your department, trying to get this concept across in a way that was acceptable to people, that they could hear about and understand. Just want to point out that by 1998, a Roper poll found that the majority of adults who drank had been a designated driver or been driven home by one. That's how much we, that's a part of who we are. But tackling distracted driving is your next big deal. You've done other things in, in between. And talk to me about why this is different, if it is, in terms of your approach. Yeah, uh, it's much tougher than drunk driving, dealing with uh, distracted driving. Uh, drunk driving is an episodic occurrence. If you're out on a Friday evening, it's not 
24-7-365. I mean, when you, it's almost an unnatural act in today's culture when you step into your car to set aside your entire professional, personal, and social universes that the rest of the day you're connected to and all but addicted to. And so it, it's, it's going to require a multifaceted effort. Uh, the, the new law in Massachusetts is, I think, a very important step forward, in particular because it renders much more readily enforceable the anti-texting law that's been on the books for a long time. Because now if a police officer sees you holding the phone, that per se is the offense. The officer does not have to prove what it is that you were doing with that phone. It used to be quite legal up until uh, now um, for, to enter GPS coordinates onto your phone while you, were, while you were driving. All of that will go away, so the enforcement will be much, much more uh, effective. But until we change social norms, there's no stigma connected with distracted driving. You know, I'll go to a cocktail party and someone will ask what I'm working on and I'll tell them and they'll look up at the ceiling and roll their eyes and say, yeah, I'm probably one of the worst offenders. I know I'm going to have to change. They wouldn't do that about drunk driving today. And so law enforcement by itself cannot solve the problem. It's going to require cultural change. And that's why we want to engage the Hollywood community again to model social norm an expectation to, to change the culture. Uh, and that's really at, at the heart of what we're going to try to achieve. Now, uh, Jay Winston of the T.H. Chan School of Public Health, one of the things that you emphasize is that people get away with it routinely, distracted driving, and so it actually reinforces bad behavior. That, that's right. Especially young people in public opinion polls and in focus groups, they say, yeah, but I'm not the problem. You know, I'm, an above, I'm a good driver, and I'm great at multitasking. And I may be scared to death of the other drivers on the road, which is an interesting insight from the public opinion research because we can take advantage of that, which we can talk about perhaps in a minute. But they don't believe they're the problem. So they will watch these highly produced video recreations of, uh, of fatal distracted driving crashes in, in slow motion, and they'll watch it by the millions the way they would a scary movie. Uh, but they're looking at that screen and saying, but that's not me because I can handle it. So how do we break through that? And each time that they get away with it, because uh, causing a distracted driving crash is actually a very low probability event. Until you've done suddenly great harm, you've probably gotten away with it hundreds of times before that, until your time came up. And so each time that you get away with it, it further reinforces your belief that you can handle it. So that's part of the complex problem that we're up against in tackling this problem. So the solutions so to speak, because the solution involves all of us and our behavior, which is a big lift, is really to think about uh, various interventions as you are thinking about this campaign to get people thinking about distracted driving in a different way. As you pointed out, hasn't worked to look at the videos, hasn't worked to hear the stories of Allison Lowell and her daughter and Emily Stein and her father, hasn't worked for folk to feel as though they should be ashamed of the behavior. It's not going to happen to me. So how do you interrupt that, which is really 
it's difficult, it seems to me. <laughs> right. Two different ways, I think. It's, I think it's primarily going to take a combination of culture change and technological change. The technology is what's driving the problem, but will also have a lot to do with managing it and controlling it. On the technology side, there, you know, you can you can minimize the effects, the adverse effects of distracted driving with uh, lane centering technology in vehicles and forward collision prevention technologies and blind spot detection so that even if a driver is distracted, technology as almost a co-pilot can intervene and help prevent a crash from occurring in the first place. You can also change expectations through financial incentives that we'll, I think, talk about a little bit later. But on the, on the cultural side, the interesting insight from the survey research is that about 75% of, of drivers say they're scared to death of other drivers on the road, as I indicated. And that provides an opportunity because we can flip it around and say, instead of saying, don't be a distracted driver, because they don't think that they're the problem anyway, be an attentive driver. And the promise of attentive driving is it will help to provide you with a degree of safety and protection against the other drivers on the road. So it's all about scanning for surprises and keeping your guard up and expecting the unexpected. And you can't simultaneously protect yourself through attentive driving and also be distracted. So the distracted would take care of itself if we can focus in on the, the risk from other drivers. The other potential uh, intervention uh, is to mobilize passengers, including children. You know, kids were very important change agents around tobacco prevention, tucking at their parents' I was. Sleeves. Okay, there I you, did it. There you yeah, go. Well, right. my sister and I, yeah. we, my, my parents stopped cold turkey. We said, we can't take it anymore. Stop it. Precisely. <laughs> so kids can do that if they're in the passenger seat around distracted driving. And you want to model that behavior uh, through social media and through YouTube videos uh, and the like, and to promote the idea and provide the language and the skills uh, and the motivation to speak up and to intervene and to stay, say something. And I think Emily will have something to say about that later on, too. Okay. That's Jay Winston. He's Associate Dean for Health Communications at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Ryan McMahon, Jay has mentioned technology, and you're right at the heart of this technology. Your firm has done a lot of work looking at just this issue. Tell us what you know about distracted driving from the data that you've collected. Sure, absolutely, and, and and thank you. And I, I just want to say at a moment, the work that Emily and Jay are doing is is commendable. This is a very challenging issue, and Cambridge Mobile Telematics was founded out of research out of MIT and getting data from uh, phones to determine, actually, the first launch of the program was to identify potholes in the city of Boston with accelerometers on phones, and that's before smartphones became uh, ubiquitous. And now to the point where you know, smartphones have actually become the problem to a certain extent. So our technology is used by mobility providers, rideshare companies, insurance companies to essentially build a safer ecosystem for drivers. And the way that that is done is by looking at the sensors on the phone, the accelerometer, the gyroscope, uh, the GPS, to determine how someone is driving, whether that be they're going too fast for an area uh, relative to the speed limit, whether they're taking corners too fast, whether they're starting and stopping too quick, too many heartbreaking events. But probably the most fascinating thing that the data reveals is actually around distracted driving. 
Because distraction is one of those things, especially with smartphone distraction, it's very hard to quantify. If you look at the main data sources for accidents that come from the National Highway Transportation Safety Agency and others, they're looking at drivers from fixed positions and they're trying to determine who's looking at their phone at various points. Maybe it's at stoplights, et cetera. But as Jay mentioned, distracted driving is not something that happens in one one moment. Um, it's not episodic. It's around us all the time. And in fact, our data, we have about 50 active programs that um, use apps that run on smartphones around the world. And our data shows that roughly a third of all trips, a third of all drives, have some significant phone distraction on them. So these are individuals that have our technology on their phone, that they have uh, typically an incentive for some reason, whether it be a lower insurance premium or they're entered into a contest or they get rewards as a result of safe driving. But for this group, roughly a, a third, and we're talking tens, hundreds of millions of trips that we analyze. And just this past year, we actually got a little bit deeper into this issue to try to look at how long is phone distraction happening? And when I say phone distraction, there we're talking in a limited context. We're talking about someone going more than 10 miles an hour. We're talking about them holding the phone and interacting with it while the, the screen is on. So we're not talking about someone talking on the phone. We're not referencing when it's mounted, although we just recently started to provide more analysis on that issue because the laws have changed behavior where we have people that stop holding their phone and instead they move their phone to a fixed position and interact with it. But but when someone is holding their phone and using it while they're going more than 10 miles an hour, in this case, in the day that we're talking about, then we see distraction happening for about 23 seconds on average. So it's heartbreaking, the first story that, that you played when the individual is talking about it a couple of seconds. I mean, it's not a couple of seconds for a lot of reasons. Too much of our technology has driven our attention, as Jay mentioned, our life uh, is really centered around our phone. And unlike any time that you've had that level of capability that that makes our lives connected, but uh, that doesn't stop at the car door. And when people are engaged in their, their driving, if I stop talking, if we stop talking for 23 seconds, everyone would, you know, everyone would think their radio is broken. That's right. Right? <laughs> so think about how long that is for your eyes to be off the road. And I'm not saying their eyes are off the road for all 23 seconds, but they're holding their phone and interacting it for that. Or their attention is diverted, which is what we're talking about, exactly. however it's happening. Exactly. So two big takeaways, a third of all of the millions of people that you've you've surveyed or looked at the data for and uh, 23 seconds. I think we need to keep that in our mind. That's my guest, Ryan McMahon, Vice President of Insurance and Government Affairs at uh, Cambridge Mobile Telematics. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Harvard T.H. Chan School's Jay Winston, Safe Roads Alliance's Emily Stein, and as I mentioned, Cambridge Mobile Telematics' Ryan McMahon. We're discussing a new national ad campaign from the Harvard T.H. Chan School's Center for Health Communication, Tackling Distracted Driving. Now, I don't know if this is one of your clients, Ryan, but I noted this State Farm ad. I'm going to play it now. This is State Farm's latest safe driving incentivation campaign. You going for a big drive safe and save discount? Yep. Using the app? I've been quite vigilant. <gasps> easy, easy. But you're in labor. Don't mess with my discount. Okay, now that's one that's all about speeding, which is just very specific. Here's another one from Allstate featuring Tina Fey, which seems to be more focused on distracted driving, though they never use the words. So let's take a listen. I'm your 70-pound St. Bernard puppy. And my lack of impulse control is about to become your problem. No, come on. I saw you eating poop earlier. Hey! 
My focus is on the road, and that's saving me cash with DriveWise. Who's the dummy now? So I assume probably one of those is using some of what you're talking about in terms of trying to get people to be incentivized to not be distracted by the dog, the speeding, and everything else. Yeah, I think that this is the really interesting thing is the insurance industry didn't really have the ability before the technology to understand who was a quote unquote safe driver and who is not. They look at uh, corollaries in actuarial tables to look at similarities of groups, but they really never understand to the point of an individual who's safe and who's not. And then the telematics technology was invented and started as a plug-in device into cars to monitor how fast someone went and how fast they turned. But really, that's only kind of a day they're gathering. What's changed in State Farm, for example, is one of our customers, State Farm's program actually gives feedback to the driver after every trip, which is, you know, the core of our technology, is the ability to, number one, identify areas where you have unsafe behavior, but really more important, give the feedback to individuals and provide incentives Mm -hmm. in that. Another company here uh, in Massachusetts that uh, is using that approach is Plymouth Rock, and they have a program called Road Rewards. And I have it. I worked there at the time when the the program was uh, created, and it changed my driving, I will tell you personally, because it gave incentives. It gives incentives now for drivers that that essentially exhibit safe behavior. It looks at essentially speeding, hard braking, acceleration, all those elements, but it also looks at phone distraction. And then every few days you get points based on your, your driving. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you can cash those points in for movie tickets. Uh, you can cash them in for Starbucks gift cards or Amazon gift cards. So now you have an incentive to pull you away from that. And I think what the insurance industry is doing is commendable because essentially you're building another dimension to this problem where enforcement is incredibly important, education is incredibly important, and the infrastructure, but also incentives. And I think that the way to combat the behavioral change uh, element that Jay mentioned is you need to also have really strong incentives. And the insurance industry obviously has that because if you get into an accident, it's, yes, you know, they're paying. they want you to pay attention. Now, I have on my phone currently, and I discussed this with Emily the last time we talked, is one of those apps that just shuts off everything while you're in the car. It can tell if you're, the car is moving. That's not as sophisticated as what you're talking about. But I don't get anything till I get out of the car. Or if I'm in the car and I'm a passenger, I can hit it and say, I am not driving. So that's a kind of forced intervention. But Jay, what I wanted to talk to you about is that this intervention that you're talking about from a human standpoint, and Emily, too, you can weigh in on this is really quite powerful if you have a combination of what Ryan is talking about. So it's a bottom line issue for some people. In Massachusetts, that's no joke. Insurance prices are high. I want to mention before you say something, Jay, that in the current law that we just passed, it takes a minute before you get to the punishment that your insurance rates go up which I have commented on, I think it should happen right away. So right. I know hopefully that's not what you would want, Emily. The, yes, the yeah. surcharge yeah. well into the future. Um, hopefully people will stop after the first offense or even, you know, realize March 31st, you could get a ticket and behavior will change. We tried pushing it to the second offense, but um, they insisted that it stays on the third. But hopefully people will see that if they do violate the law a third you time, pay for it. they will pay for right. it in, in a different way. All right, Jay, let's talk about this intervention and the power of it. I already told you we stopped my parents from doing it. Yeah. So how powerful? I know you have something planned coming up to really have parents and kids interacting. Right. Now, bearing in mind that most road trips are single occupancy, yes. especially, you know, all mm-hmm. during the work week. So the kids can get the parents Sometimes. On the weekends, Mm -hmm. but that's why these are all partial solutions. Mm -hmm. And there's some 
total of them, which was also the case around drunk driving, designated driver was not a silver bullet. It was one component of a comprehensive national and local strategy around drunk driving prevention. I think in addition to the interventions by kids and adult passengers Mm -hmm. as, as well, there's actually a need for some basic education that we assume people have and that they get Hmm. that distracted driving is dangerous and they tell pollsters that they get it. But at a deeper level, I don't think they do. For example, if you are cognitively distracted, your mind is on something else, you could be staring straight down the road and you won't see a red light or a pedestrian coming in front of you, even though the signal of the light transmitted to your eye will register on the retina, but it won't be transferred and acted on in the right section of the brain. So you have situational blindness. Mm -hmm. You also have what's called tunnel vision. When you're very distracted cognitively, looking straight down the road, you stop scanning left and right. So if something is about to come into your peripheral vision, you will not see it because you're no longer scanning. And that's why the message is scan for surprises, expect the unexpected. You have to maintain situational awareness, which is not a concept that's yet very prominent in the road safety field. It is in sports. Uh, you know, Tom Brady is a genius at situational awareness, and, and Belichick taught, taught him that. Uh, likewise, first responders, uh, at, when you're going through red lights because you're driving a fire engine or an ambulance, et cetera. But in, and even in operating rooms where you have a, a group working together around, uh, around the patient, it's crucial. But we don't talk about situational awareness in road safety. And there has to be easy language about it. That's right. why we talk about scanning for surprises and expect the unexpected. We don't talk about maintain your situational awareness. Well, what I also learned from just having conversations with people like Emily is that even if you stop, at a red light and you think, okay, well, I have a pause here. I'm not moving. I can sort of check something now. It's actually still distracting. And that wasn't entirely clear, Emily, until I talked with you. So I don't, I don't do that anymore. I thought that was safe. I, I don't do that. But I'm going to tell you something that's tough. I say to the Uber driver, I'm sorry. I don't want you talking on the phone. And I get an attitude. So this is Jay Winston, Ryan McMahon, Emily Stein. This ain't easy to be the interventionist. And you're going to get a low <laughs> Uber rating besides. Oh, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So, I mean, this is, it's more than a notion. Oh, yeah. And one guy just said, you know, at this point, it's against the law. Stop. It's tough. It is tough. It's tough. Yeah. And the law, the law does help. And this is something, if we switch to the kids, you know, the language we're going to teach the kids is that non-confrontational bystander intervention language. So you use the I statements. I feel scared when you fill in the blank. And I think it's it's hard for me to use that. It's it's we're not used to using this language all the time, but it's not only great for kids when speaking up to an adult driver, but we could use it with the Uber driver, we could use it with a friend, and it shows kind of this level of respect. And research has shown that people respond really well to that, but it's still not easy. That's my guest, Emily Stein, president of Safe Roads Alliance. All right, so when can we expect to see the beginnings of the campaign, Jay Winston, the Uh, new one? In April, and Mm -hmm. there'll be a big initial emphasis on social media. Mm -hmm. And Quincy Jones is going to help us mobilize the music music industry, the the artists uh, Mm -hmm. behind it, and he'll participate himself. 
uh, and we'll be developing an outreach both to parents and to kids separately. So a big social media push. We want to pursue not only media, but also community mobilization. And so we want to create materials that local advocacy groups can use to create visibility within their own towns. So there'll be a combination. I want to play a clip from a young man who actually was in the room with somebody who was devastated by distracted driving, ended up paralyzed, parents were killed. And just to hear what what he had to say after witnessing this and then come back to you. This is a reaction from a teen who spoke with this young woman who was very much affected by a distracted driver. I can assure you on my drive home right now, I'm not going to use my phone and drive, and I'm not going to do it when I go to work tomorrow and the next day after that until, you know, it becomes a habit and that just doesn't happen. Now, I want to believe him, but what we know from the data is that that kind of lasts for a short period of time. What is one step that somebody could take by listening to this to just sort of keep that going for a moment. I mean, just, you know, you know you said it to yourself, you're not going to do it, and then you sort of slip back. Do any of you have a suggestion? I think that's where technology can Mm -hmm. come in in a big way. Yeah, I mean, my recommendation is we have an app that's available right now that is called Safest Driver in the App Store. If you download it, you'll be able to see your own data on how you're driving. I mean, it's it's one of those things that's actually shocking. It happens in the background. You don't necessarily realize how much you're picking up your phone. I think the best advice is to put your phone out of reach. It's very hard to do that for individuals. So this is an interim step, I think, that to identify, to get individuals to download an app, understand how their own driving is. And uh, distracted driving is part of it, understanding speeding on local roads, how your actual driving impacts risk. And this would be a great step that individuals can take. And I can tell you that we have great success stories. So one of our most prominent customers, actually in South Africa, this company Discovery Insure, they've reduced roadway fatalities by 60% for their customers versus the population at large. And partially that's due to the ability to give feedback and incentives to individuals. And I think both of those things are important because sometimes, and I think, Emily, this goes to the campaign that you're working on at the same time, which I think is, is brilliant, is the feedback is one of those items that is really important that people get, you know, you're just not going to get stopped by law enforcement enough for that to ingrain Mm. quickly enough to help solve the problem. So these are great steps along the way. Now, Jay, I know that you think, um, Emily, I know this will be hard for you to hear that there's going to have to be secondary legislation of a wide nature, you know, uniformly across the country in the end to stop this. Well, there's either, either going to have to be national legislation or much stronger local state level legislation. Because we're really at the earliest stages, frankly, on the legislative front. In fact, Canada is far ahead of us. And in Canada today, depending upon the province, you can have a fine of $1,000 for on a first offense for uh, distracted driving. You can also, in another province, you'll have your driving privileges lifted on the spot. The, the police officer will actually take your driver's license away and it's gone for three days. You have a temporary license for 
48 hours so you can get home and you can get your affairs in order. And then you have a three-day suspension, and you've got to show up at a government office to reactivate your license. It's a seven-day suspension wow. for, a, for a second offense and 30-day for a third, and then you lose your license uh, permanently. You know, in California today, if what I read the other day is correct, the fine is somewhere, it's under $100. For a first, now, what is that saying to you? Yes, it's against the law. It's not much, and and until we change the culture, we won't have the tough laws. We won't have the tough fines, and we won't have the tough mobilization of communities. It comes down to culture change in the end. Emily, you get the last word on this that day that we officially kick off our attempt to start getting people to pay attention. I think our main goal is just to to get everybody to. To realize what's at stake and to remember that, you know, especially if your kids are in the backseat, they are watching you and they will become distracted drivers. Um, so for your kids, for your family, for your coworkers, just get there safely. Um, and, you know, we welcome anybody's help in helping to spread the message. All right. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Jay Winston is the Associate Dean for Health Communications at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Emily Stein is the president of Safe Roads Alliance. And Ryan McMahon is the vice president of insurance and government affairs at Cambridge Mobile Telematics, a smartphone telematics analytics provider. Coming up, artist Jacob Lawrence painted a total of 10 narrative series over the course of his career. His seventh, The American Struggle, was the only one to be broken up eventually ending up in various collections. Over 50 years later, the striking historical chronicle has been reunited for the first time at Salem's Peabody Essex Museum to tell Americans' collective history and eternal pursuit of freedom. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. African-American artist Jacob Lawrence made a name for himself after a series of paintings called the Migration Series. He was 23 years old. Jacob Lawrence went on to become one of the best-known artists of the 20th century, using his signature style featuring deep, rich colors, geometric shapes, and collage. Lawrence was deeply invested in telling the inclusive story of America, and during the modern civil rights movement set out to visualize what he said was the struggles of a people to create a nation and their attempt to build a democracy. Those paintings were little known and little seen until now. In a first-ever exhibit, Salem's Peabody Essex Museum has brought together 23 of the multi-paneled work for the first time in more than 50 years. We're here at the Peabody Essex Museum, joined by Lydia Gordon, Associate Curator of Exhibitions and Research at the PIM. Hello, Lydia. Hello. Well, this is quite an exciting exhibition we've just walked through, and I think anybody going through will be quite stunned by just how intense it is. 
I think that's that's what comes across. It is. The intensity and the energy that he's evoking in his paintings is totally captivating. Um, I think what most people are surprised about, and as we talked about in the gallery, I mean, how modest um, the scale is of these paintings. They're 12 by 16, but they pack a real punch, and they're really pulling you in the midst of the events um, that he's depicting of early American history. So I came to know Jacob Lawrence through his depictions of Harlem. That's how I knew him, because um, African-American artists, certainly of his time, were often shut out of museums and galleries and really in the art world itself. And one of the things that they did that was so appreciated by those of us in that community was really look outside where they were and portray that, portray the ordinary lives of folks. So that's what drew me in. And I became accustomed to his style, which he called dynamic cubism. And I wonder if you'd talk about that a bit, because I think that this series really exhibits that. Uh, in, in the past, the pieces have been, yes, cubist in nature, but I would say they were quite representational as well, and this seems to go an entirely different direction. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So he garnered his artistic training in the Harlem Art Workshops. I mean, his teachers were Charles Alston and Augusta Savage. And in those workshops, um, they taught the students to uh, connect the layers of tempera paint and weight them with symbolic meaning. So he uh, continued to work in this mode um, into his 20s and in the creation of his narrative series in particular. And then in the 1950s, um, uh, over 10 years after he created Migration, um, you know, he's a very mature artist at this point. I mean, he's sort of at the height of his powers. I mean, he's teaching um, as well in, uh, in Brooklyn at Pratt. And uh, what's going on around him, of course, in the 1950s in terms of American art is abstraction. I mean, this obsessiveness with abstract expressionism. Lawrence maintains a figurative practice, but we see this influence, this sort of negotiation with cubism, with um, these different vantage points being layered and seen at once. And so the way in which he organizes the composition, especially in this mid-century work from the 50s um, looks very different than, let's say, migration series. In that particular series, he laid down color iteratively. So he painted all the yellows and then all the greens and so on and so forth. He painted these panels from the struggle series individually. Um, so they are unique in that mode and they capture um, the energy that, that Lawrence put into them. Um, and they have these incredible angles and geometric shapes and the colors, as you say, are really captivating. So what I've taken away from the series is called Struggle, is that the angles are so sharp. You know, one of the things that draws normal folks to his work and then really excites critics is that he's an, a narrative person, a narrative storyteller. I mean, everything is about in service of a story. So he's telling this really hard story of struggle and not just African-American struggle, but the struggle of really Americans to be Americans and all of the tragedy that came with that. And the angles are, they feel as if they could cut you. They're so sharp. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and there are bayonets, these points in almost every painting. There's also blood 
in a lot of a that. Lot of blood. In in <laughs> a lot of blood. It's very it's um strikingly violent these pieces, but the way in which that he paints the points as you say the bayonets or even there are lots of people pointing you know lots of sort of diagonal lines these crisscrosses that are happening within the composition very much speak to the nature of the fracturing of this dominant narrative to reconstitute a more complete narrative a more inclusive narrative yeah somebody was uh, referring to this as a people's history so that the vantage point that we see as we look at the pieces have the folks that we may think of, the George Washingtons, let's just take for an example, they're there, but they're not the main characters. And this was quite deliberate in his telling of this story. Yes, absolutely. And a really good example of that is the second panel in this series, which is called The Massacre in Boston. So most people are familiar with the representation of that event in the Paul Revere engraving, which pictured the Redcoats shooting at the colonists who were revolting with sticks and snowballs and really just whatever they had. Absent from that engraving is Crispus Attucks, who was the first to die in the conflict. And this was a man of African and indigenous descent. Lawrence chooses to center him as the vantage point really in his painting. So when you look at panel number two, you see Crispus Attucks hunched over and all of the diagonal lines are pointing to him. So the way in which his comrades are rendered behind him, their elbows and their legs and their angles are all leading to Attucks as the vantage point. So, Lydia, one of the things that you pointed out is that this was not a series, well, for one thing, it wasn't meant to be dispersed, but it was. And now this is really quite something to have all these pieces reunited here, and then it'll be on tour uh, at other museums. But it wasn't really responded to well in the moment, as often happens sometimes with artists' work. And I'm wondering if it was just too tough a story, though. It's interesting because Lawrence painted many things that were tough stories, Why do you think this was hard for people to wrap their minds around and and accept? I think it was a tough story. And I have to think back to the moment in which he was creating this work. So we're in the 1950s and 1954 when he picks up his paintbrush the supreme court had just ruled to desegregate public schools 1954 right Mm -hmm. and then uh, by 1955 um, at the time of the montgomery bus boycotts he had painted 15 of them so he Mm -hmm. was working rapidly within this very significant moment in american history and his dealer charles allen was continuously corresponding with the museums and the institutions that had long supported Lawrence and telling them about this series. But this series is different. It's indifferent in the framework, this framework of struggle that Lawrence chose. Um, It's also different in how the images, the paintings, are paired with their caption titles. So their caption titles, the words that serve as the titles of the paintings, are first-person accounts. So when he was in the library and he was reading, he was excerpting from letters and correspondences of people who were the real voices of those that are underrepresented. And he paired those accounts 
with the images. So previously he had used a third person narrator, right? And sort of condensed the information, the event and the painting into a sentence or two uh, to tell the narrative, to tell the story. But now we're reading these words by actual people and then oftentimes seeing an image of an event and the work that goes into reconciling the relationship between the image and the text proved to be a little complicated for those that the gallery was trying to solicit. So you mentioned something that we should highlight, which is that he did a huge amount of study before he, you know, put a paintbrush on canvas. And it's art. So, you know, and he's an artist and this is through his interpretation. So we have to say that. But in many ways, this feels very documentary Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the telling. And I wonder if you feel that or have thought about it in that way. There is some serious power in going back to the facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, Lawrence um, took it upon himself and also his right as an American to uh, to tell this story. And so there is a significant amount of power in his choices to excerpt these first person accounts. But he spent uh, five years um, st- researching um, in the library and using um, pictorial history books as well as the clipping files um, that were um, composed of his contemporary moment newspaper articles um, on uh, black culture and black history. And these were painted, uh, pasted into um, binders that were organized by themes. So he had a lot of reference material. Um, I mean, how many works of modern art start in the library? It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. <laughs> and really archival, you know, he, he really went deep. Here's a question, as I was thinking as I walked through, his interpretation might be not known to a lot of people, so this would be a surprise in that way. But the stories, particularly of the formation of the nation and those struggles, we've had a moment in the last few years where a certain other immigrant, Lynn manuel Miranda, has been telling this same story with a different kind of perspective. That's a musical, it's Hamilton. But a lot of these stories now are recognizable to people because of that, because he's you know made it part of our, our lexicon. So I wonder if we're at a space where it's a little bit more accepting to see where he was coming from. Yes, I think mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think it also is such an inspiring note. I mean, the fact that Lawrence was putting forward these stories uh, mid-century, over 60 years ago, and here they are today in a, in a complicated but digestible format, I think also lays claim to the future generations that can use this material and uh, find more stories and think about new artistic solutions and different solutions for presenting those that go unheard. And I think it's important to for us to speak uh, spend a little time talking about how important Jacob Lawrence not is now, his legacy, of course, but it was then. Um, there are so few artists, I think I was mentioning this to you earlier, who know at the time of their life and career that they are their work is respected, admired, and sought after. That doesn't often happen, and it certainly didn't happen for many African-American artists. So when we talk about Lawrence, he is, of course, a master. Uh, Many people know him as an African-American master, but he's a 20th century master artist, and he's known to be that. So when you have that power put on any kind of art piece, it's really something. And I just want to talk to you about, for example, his 
work being featured in Fortune magazine because that seemed so like impossible at that time for a black artist. And yet a lot of his work was featured in Fortune magazine. What do you make of that? And how should other people be looking at Lawrence now in the context of 20th century artists? There's this incredible exhibition right now. I think it's still up at the Guggenheim on the gallerist Edith Helpert, who owned the downtown gallery. And she is responsible for publishing the migration series in Fortune magazine. So he was 23 years old. I mean, a child, really, when he painted migration. But he, in his community, especially was known as a child prodigy. And when Edith saw this work, she had a visceral reaction to it. And so uh, they started these conversations, and she was able to uh, publish um, Migration Series in that magazine. And from there, um, the Phillips Collection and the Museum of Modern Art approached um, Edith Halpert and her gallery um, about acquiring the piece. And so Lawrence is the first African-American artist in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art. Um, And it's significant because um, for a lot of reasons, but the fact that he was able to sort of cross this color line at a very young age. So he matured in this space, in um, this space where his work was being recognized. Um, and also being recognized by, uh, you know, communities that were, you know, not just the white art world, of course. And so he always um, he always said, you know, everything that I have to say is in my artwork. Mm. Um, and to have that level um, of confidence, um, but also he was very uh, – I told this little story about um, – how his student found out that he was actually this really famous artist <laughs> upon her upon her trip to the Smithsonian. Um, you know, he was just really dedicated to his practice and to teaching. Which I think um, uh, comes through with um, all the stories I've read about him and how, how he was nurturing other artists. Um, since we've talked about his narrative being at the core of really his being and his art, this is one of a series of uh, 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 one of many series, many narrative series that he painted. Where would you place this? We've already talked about talked about the response to it. I don't mean that, but in terms of its artistry, where would you place it in the context and the spectrum of all of his series? Right. So this is. Um the seventh narrative series that he painted. He painted 10 in his life. Um, I think it's important to know that when when Lawrence embarked on this project, and we know this because of the archival research going through the papers and the correspondences, that he actually set out to paint 60 panels. Um, And he laid down this plan of project in which um, he described the sort of timeline of events that he would cover. And as he began to research, he applied for uh, funding uh, from the Guggenheim uh, Foundation, which was denied. And he revised his plan of project um, in uh, the late 1940s in an application to the Chapelbrook Foundation. And um, in that uh, request for funding, he had limited it down to 30. So um, 
it was clear that something had shifted um, for Lawrence. And I think that is significant because in his other narrative work, which are um, range in numbers, you know, from 60 um, and down, there are um, definitive sort of moments or bookends that seem to emerge from that work. This work um, has an openness uh, to it. And he actually wrote a letter about this, about this process of finishing, like the, the question, when does an artist know when they're mm-hmm. finished? He wrote to uh, Jay Lida, who was a confidant, a friend of his, a former curator at the Museum of Modern Art um, in 1954 and told him that um, you know he couldn't continue this series in the way that he was doing it because the world had changed. If he was to go back and start it again, he would do it differently. We don't know what he, how he would do it differently, but he wrote that. Um, and so, so through that lens, through his own, the writing, um, I see this series as um, you know a, a whole body of work. Um, a story that's being told, but it also is an inviting story that has an openness that has this um, levels, different levels of interpretation. Hmm. Um, there's a quote that I, I read by him that I, I wanted you to respond to, too, because it speaks to his style. And I guess he's artists are always evolving. Um, he said there a painting should have three things, universality, clarity and strength, clarity and strength so that it may be aesthetically good, universality so that it may be understood by all men. We assume that means women as well. Um, but the reach to everybody was really important to him. So when you talk about his trying to figure out how he was going to do a series that we've as we've discussed, is is kind of a tough series that had to be on his mind, and and yet, um, you know, he he did it because he wanted to tell this story. But at the end, it wasn't enough for him just to sort of satisfy some artistic itch for himself. He really wanted it to be read and understood by anybody who would see it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, when he started. Um, out on this series, um, he started by thinking he would paint a black history of of early American history. But as he began to research, this lens of struggle became productive um, for the artist. And it's through struggle that he discovered um, that he needed to include all these different other stories because they created a stronger story, a stronger narrative. Um, and I think that that, like his ability to um, expand his scope, but also narrow it at the same time, lends itself to that quote that you read, because these are incredibly beautifully, aesthetically pleasing paintings, but they have this ability to speak to anyone. Everyone is in there. I mean, he paints everyone in this series. Um, so this feeling of being connected to the content, to the story, is very evident in his execution. So I always ask authors this, but I'm, I'm curious um, if, what you would say to this. What do you want people to take away? Um, they come, they embrace the work, um, certainly it's it's beautifully executed. They um, feel the story. Um, I think they can sense his struggle around representing struggle. Um, but what do you want them to take away from it? 
I would love the, uh, our visitors um, to take away, I, I said this before, but the power in going back to the facts. There's power in research. Um, there's power in the knowledge that, it, that our libraries contain um, and that it is our responsibility um, to go to those um, facts and those stories and present them. Um, it's also, I think, a really inspiring show. These paintings feel very urgent um, right now, and they feel um, they they don't feel like they were produced over 60 years ago, and that's really inspiring. So I hope that um, for those that are you know creative or artists or writers that they just uh, feel Lawrence's spirit in that space and take that energy with them when when they leave. Um, can you see Lawrence's legacy in, I know there are other artists that are, have weighed in here as a part of the exhibition, which I think is is fabulous, but I'm wondering even more broadly, do you see his legacy in what other artists are doing now, that sense of urgency, that spirit? Absolutely. I mean, the sense of revisionist history, you know, of, of telling these stories um, that complicate the dominant narrative or the understanding, I think, is is a very active practice by by creatives artists and writers and and scholars today absolutely and what do you think his legacy is period just as an artist oh my gosh what a tough question (laughs) (laughs) I mean um he I think he has a tremendous legacy and a tremendous reach he built these um these incredible networks around him both in New York and in Seattle um, where he spent the rest of his life and there's a community around um around the work that people do on Jacob Lawrence. Um, and it's with that community that we're also engaged heavily with educational institutions, um, children especially. Um, he was adamant that this series would be published. Um, it's really history you can hold in your hand, and we've done that um, in this exhibition. And um, we're very proud of it. You know, I think we think Lawrence would be very pleased by it. But um, also, you know, there's a charge there with making sure that our next generation of um, people who will who will you know take care um, of this country know um, about Jacob Lawrence and the powers um, that he had to create um, his work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lydia Gordon is an associate curator at the Peabody Essex Museum. Jacob Lawrence, The American Struggle is on view until April 26. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at wgbh.org slash news slash under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH produced by Francisca Monahan and engineered by Dave Goodman. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.